Everybody, welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast, where for the last three and a half years, we have been reading every book Rick Riordan has ever written and seeking to answer the question, is Percybeth the greatest love story ever told? Now we are over halfway through season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, and today we are going to be joined by a very special guest, an associate producer on the TV show. Stick around. (laughs) Woo! So before the episode, Eric and I were joking about NPR smooth voices, and she totally dropped into this like silky voice that is it's pretty similar to her speaking voice, but like effortlessly easy to listen to. Um, so I sound funny. like a West Coast stoner, which I'm not, but um, you actually do. I sound so much like a West Coast stoner. You guys are gonna have to speed up my audio, like two x speed. Um, but yeah. Or is it because you're from the West Coast or have you just been on the West Coast for so long? It's I'm from San Francisco, okay. which is not like a SoCal surfer city at all. I don't know. I, I have no idea. Maybe just, you know, too much ambrosia or something. But too I, much uh, nectar and ambrosia. Never too yeah, much nectar and ambrosia. <laughs> Formal <laughs> introduction. Stuart Strandberg is here in the house tonight. Will you tell us about your career and how you ended up working on the Percy Jackson show? Lay the foundation for us. You have my dream job. I want the listeners to know about what you do. (laughs) Yes. um, The foundation, first of all, my first interaction with John Steinberg, the showrunner of season season one and co-creator and genius writer was um, I texted him. He didn't have my number and I texted him. Jeno needs you to be in the airport in an hour and a half. There's a car on the way to your house. By the way, this is Kristen's assistant, Stuart. And he was like, okay, cool. This is back, God, in 2018 when he was sure running C, the TV show for Apple TV. <laughs> I was um, working at Chernin, which was the studio. And um, he'd just been hired. And there was one of, would be many emergencies on set. And um, my boss is like, oh, yeah, text John that he needs to be in Vancouver in the next two hours. I was like, great. Um, and then with Dan, my first interaction in person with Dan was, this is before the pandemic, obviously, and before Zoom and all that. We He lives, I don't know if anyone's familiar with LA geography, but he, leaves, he lives in Sherman Oaks, and our offices were in Reina del Rey. So about, you know, the north and south tip of, of, of LA. And I had a meeting, what I thought was a meeting um, for him and some other people. It turned out to be a call. So I had him drive like 45 minutes one way against traffic. And I was like so scared to tell him it was a call. And he's like, that's all right, man. We'll make it work. (laughs) It was just so sweet about it. So, um, So yeah, that was my first interaction with them. And then my boss left Chernin, and ever since I started working in the entertainment industry, I wanted to get closer and closer to where the story's built. I started at WMA, which is a talent agency which represents a lot of writers, directors, actors, podcasters, you name Beyonce. it. Beyonce. Beyonce's, yes. <laughs> multi, multi-hyphenate, one-namers. I worked there, got my job at Chernin, and through each step, uh, agents, I was representing producers, so these producers would come to us with really fun show ideas, and we'd help them find financing, international sales, all that stuff. And then once we'd sold it, like that's off your 
desk. It's you're not right. focused on it anymore. Yeah. And that was really frustrating because you know it's like I get really excited about something and then you you know you and the client sell it and you never hear from them again until their next thing. And so I wanted to get closer to the actual story. So I worked at Chernin, which is a production company studio. And what they do is they help develop these projects. Here's a writer with a certain idea. We know an actor or actress who could be really good for it. We're going to put them together. You know, we have good relationships with networks. Networks are like the Netflixes, HBOs, Disney Pluses. We know what they're looking for. So we're going to bring it all together. And then obviously when they're shooting, they're ideally helping to supervise and do all that stuff. So um, I was at Chernin and... You would development's really fun. It's essentially being like a what a book editor does. You're helping out with the project, but there are certain instances where you felt really strongly the direction should go one way, and um, the writers just you know either for better or worse would disagree, and there's nothing you can really do. So at that point, I was like, I want to get even closer to you know the seeds of the story where the story tree is 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 born and not created by Zeus in some disastrous way. <laughs> but um, I wanted to get as close as possible. So I, I heard John and Dan were looking. This is probably half a year after you know like first I paid, in quotations meeting them. Um, and so I started as their assistant, showrunner's assistant, um, worked my way through The Old Man Season 1. Um, I was there when we were on set in The Old Man, which had a bunch of delays due to COVID and actor's health and stuff. I, was just, I remember forever the, the Friday when 20th TV told us that Percy Jackson was going to them. We're just so happy. Um, I should get those like text framed actually, but um, yeah. <laughs> we're all really happy. And since then, I mean, that was, you know, almost four years ago. So since then just risen um, to become a writer's assistant, which is what I was for season one of Percy Jackson and for season two of old man, um, the script coordinator and hopefully knock on wood or whatever you have uh, script coordinator for season two of Percy, which we're hoping to get green light fingers crossed oh my goodness well yeah. okay, now is the time i have to tell you that <laughs> for our listeners see that for carter that <laughs> i was a huge fan of c season one on apple tv starring jason momoa it was crazy like there was one day where they had a grizzly bear on set just like hanging out and they had like a grizzly bear trainer and like it's just like my my colleague Zoe Neary was there. Just like, yeah, it's just a grizzly bear hanging out. Like we can't bring food around it. And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. That is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for walking us through that, especially for our listeners who are interested in working in the industry. I'm sure this show is going to inspire a lot of people to work. I hope so. People. That would be great. Will you tell our listeners yeah. what being like a writer's assistant looks like? Of course. I mean, you wake up at 3 a.m. Workout, go to bed. <laughs> pre-workout, pre-workout. You know, drink two raw eggs. And no, it's it's <laughs> it's 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 really nice. I think John said this about it. It's like being the archivist for the whole story. Your job is to take minutes, basically notes of every single writer's room. So for TV, because of deadlines, you have not one writer working on them, but you know a whole group of writers and what we call a writer's room. And so so you assign each individual writer an episode and the writers collectively come up with an outline for the season, which obviously with a book that's already been written and is perfect. Um, you don't need to do much to change that. So with the writer's room, you, you basically, it's like a basketball team. Everyone has their own skill. 
everyone brings something different to the table. You assign someone an episode and they go out, crank it out while the room is still humming because you, you, you're the engine of the whole story getting written. So um, as a writer's assistant, you're taking notes in every single writer's room and compiling documents for the writers who go off and write their episodes. These are all the relevant notes for that episode, blah, 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 blah. Really, again, just the archivist of the story. If something comes up in episode 207 that conflicts with something in episode 202, you have to bring it up. It's so funny to me with binging TV. It's like, you know, you can easily, especially with episodes that are so short, like Percy, like you can watch it all in an afternoon. And, you know, for us, that's like two years of our lives. Like the space between episode 203 and episode 207 was probably nine months, you know, like it's a lot of time passes between them. So you forget, you know, certain small details that are obvious to someone who's experiencing it just by watching it. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned the books being perfect. Did you have any relationship mm. with Percy Jackson before yeah, walking into this project? Absolutely. I read them all when they came out. For the listeners, he's wearing an orange Camp Half-Blood shirt right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Our costume department uh, made them all, obviously, have a million of these, but they're all in kid sizes, which is really frustrating. So I had to like find a size that's for like an adult human. So fortunately, I was able to get my hands on one, but like most of the Percy Jackson t-shirts, it would be like a crop top, which I think defeats the (laughs) message that I'm trying to send out to the world. I don't think I I want to send the whole camp half-blood drinking 20 beers on a Sunday. That's a Dionysus vibe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, so I read them when I was 12 years old. My first Facebook comment was um, in the Percy fan group. I hope no one finds it because I was like, oh, you can be my Annabeth. Like uh, you're, you know, <gasps> da da da, and the girls like, don't ever message me again. Like, which I think it's a pretty good Annabeth response, honestly. She was your Annabeth. It was just, she was just your book one Annabeth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, like a pre-book one. Like even more work to do to get there. But um, I love the books. Read them and went, like you know, always loved the project. I was scared when we got it because of the movies. Obviously, love Logan mm-hmm. Lerman. Obviously, doesn't doesn't need to be said, but. Period. Back to Logan. Logan, I know you're listening. We love you. Oh yeah, seaweed brain listener Logan Lerman, big fan. Oh yeah. But no, I've always I've always loved the books. I absolutely love them. I was surprised when I reread them how relevant they still are. And my sister-in-law, Katie Klingman, um, she teaches high school English. So I was really surprised. Not just that, you know, like my generation, our generation. I'm, I don't know how old you guys are. Um, you know, 23 or something. You guys look very young. 24, but, 25. Um, yeah, there you go. I, I grew up, you know, I grew up with the books, but my sister-in-law said, you know, like the kids who come up still read them. And so it was just really heartwarming to me. And obviously, you know, that there's people ages, you know, 10 to 35 or whatever, I'm sure beyond, who still love them because they're so human and because Brick's voice is so funny and so smart. But so I, you know, I had a lot of love for the books. I read them, you know, dozens of times each. I'm so excited for the later books too. My God. What's your favorite book? I love Labyrinth. I think three and four are my favorites. Three is our favorite. Yeah, three is... (laughs) Amazing. I mean, I'm from the Bay Area. Rick actually used to teach at school. I think it was Claire Lilienthal. I could be wrong, though. But it was a few miles from where my school was. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I remember our librarian. I, I feel like I'm aging myself. But our librarian in school like brought us all together for like a reading 
of the book before it was published because I think he gave it out to like a bunch of fellow teachers because he's a G. And so I just remember like the first few chapters were read to us. And like right when Dodds was killed, like I was like, I'm in. Like this is really cool. (laughs) And I just loved it. I love that hook so much and that world. So yeah, I've been I've been in it for a while. I know Daphne mentioned, I'm pretty sure she told us a story and it was about you being like the the youngest and like most like fan person who would be in the room and could be like, oh, this thing isn't right or like this thing is right. Daphne's a fan. Daphne became a fan. She's a big Luke, Luke stan. Um, <laughs> but no, I at the early stages, I think I was kind of deep into yeah. protecting. I mean, not that it needed protecting, but like vouching for certain things that appeared small in the first few chapters that would grow bigger or anything like that. Yeah. In the lead up to to this conversation, I think you mentioned that you specifically had a lot to say about episode six. Can you say more about Nico? About yeah. <laughs> Talk about Nico and Bianca right now for yeah. 45 minutes. <laughs> we obviously had the Easter egg that the fans sleuthed in 10 seconds, but there were other versions of it. Eric and I were talking about it earlier, but one of the problems was if we cast Nico now, I mean, we shot that back in November of 2022. The actor who is ageless in the story would have aged. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. that's one of the reasons we had to do it that way. But we had integrated him into the script a a lot more before hitting that roadblock. I don't think I can go into how, but... He would have been involved, is all I'll say, um, in a in a fun way. Fully CGI'd, just like cast a yeah, robot exactly. and then CGI. I love this episode because I really, in the books, gravitated towards the Lotus Casino. I just felt like, I mean, the reason we still talk about Greek mythology is because it's still relevant. And I think the Lotus Casino, reading it as a 12-year-old who would always procrastinate on homework and watch too much TV and couldn't get up from the couch sometimes, I thought that that was just true, like capital T, true to my life. And the idea that, you know, these people 2000 years ago, before there was even a thing as like a comfortable bed had that problem. It felt (laughs) so fantastical to me and it engaged my mind in such a, such a way that a lot of books hadn't before. And I think that's the beauty of the books. Obviously everyone I'm sure has that moment of realization that humans have been dealing with the same problem for aeons and aeons. And we change so much, but we still at our core are very, very similar. And so just reading it, I felt very seen in a way that I hadn't before. And in bringing it to the small screen, I just wanted to make sure we still got that and that that moment resonated with kids in the same way it resonated with me. Because obviously you have a bunch of people who are watching who never read the books. And I just wanted to make sure that they felt seen as well. Yeah. This has been like, for whatever reason, whether it's because so many people felt attached to the Lotus Hotel and Casino in the books or because of the movies, this has been an episode like people were really looking forward to and really excited. And people have talked about a lot because everybody has their own like perception of, of what the casino is based on how they read it. And we felt very much after watching episode six, like there was a strong characterization of the casino as being like a real casino and that real casinos are weird and kind of sad places where you just get stuck. And like Hermes is like kind of weird and sad. Like, why is he spending his time here? Will you talk to us about that decision to make the casino a place that is unsettling and like not like glamorous? Well, I think it's that emotional state where 
you are both enjoying being in a certain place, either in your life, literally like on the couch on a Sunday morning, having <laughs> to get up and knowing you have a chore list that's taller than you are, or, you know, just kind of in at the verge of a tough decision, knowing you have to move, but being paralyzed to move. And it's this thing of, which I think is really relevant, you're getting so much short-term gratification or feedback, but you're not feeding your soul or the larger you in the long run. It's it's the short-term versus long-term gratification, and you can feed this part of yourself a bunch. But at the end of the day, that's not the full visceral you. So I think really the casino is about escapism. And the thing about escapism is you can never escape yourself. And Hermes knows that. I think he's here because he knows he's hurt. And I think if you look at the people who gravitate towards escapism, they're, they're hurt people. And I think Hermes is there because he's hurt. He loves Luke. He obviously loves Luke's mom. And he hates how things shook up. How, what's going on. And he feels powerless, thanks to his conversation with Poseidon, to really act in the way that he suspects would be right or to make him feel better. With casinos, I think a lot of times it is exactly as Rick described it, just a break from reality. They don't have windows in casinos for a reason, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that also part of it is an adaptation problem because with a book, it's not in your face. It's it's kind of at the mercy of your imagination. You know, in the book, I, I think that it was definitely more designed for kids and there were kids there, but I don't necessarily think those kids are playing with smiles on their faces i think it's more slack jaw four hour tiktok i do wish that we had a shooting range off of las vegas that would have been fun or something like that from the books but (laughs) yeah another issue with the adaptation is you know with tv it's the ugliest form of democracy you've got a budget you've got hundreds and hundreds of people who all have to really strive towards the same idea and articulating that idea and so so with this, it's we got this beautiful location. Well, not beautiful. It's an abandoned mall, but it was beautiful for us because <laughs> how we could dress it. And um, we really just wanted to stick with it and make it as good as we as we could possibly make it. And you can't really dip too deep into the VFX budget and create you know 20, 30, 40 layers to it like it was described as in the books. You have to be smart with your shots and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of adaptation, in the larger conversation about pacing when it comes to these episodes and how to pace out an entire book in eight episodes, we've been really interested about what gets shown versus what gets named named and like what gets kind of breezed through or what gets spent more time on. And like in this episode, it was so interesting to see all of the extras dressed in their varying period outfits that were so specific. And then like, that's something that like doesn't get named. So it's almost like an Easter egg for the people who have read the book. Do you have anything to say about like the choices like that? Like, what do you specifically spend time calling attention to when there's so little time because you have the constraints of the streaming episode length? No, of course. That's a great question. I think that our goal from the beginning, something John really articulated well in all of our conversations and something that Rick also felt strongly about was we need to honor the fans, but also we want to make this a show for everyone a la Pixar. What Pixar does really well, their movies where you can be, you know, a 40-year-old father, mother of two, and enjoy it just as much as your child. And likewise, with the books, we want the book readers to have a deeper understanding and enjoyment of it 
without ostracizing the people who are just coming into it with fresh eyes. There are things as a book reader that I really gravitated towards that some people who hadn't read the books the same way didn't want. But I think at the end of the day, we wanted to make something that everyone could enjoy, but book readers got to enjoy on a different level because they see the Easter eggs. And by the way, on the subject of costumes, we had a whole upstairs that Tish set up with just like costumes from every era and it was just so fun <laughs> like some family visited that week and they just got to like be like i want to be a 1960s soprano or something and like they would dress them up and do their hair like that was such a fun set just like the atmosphere was kind of very much pretty pretty princess like play up it was it was oh, great yeah. there are so many extras in this episode it's wild everything that you've been saying about trying to keep some things new for people who have existing relationships with the books really comes to a head in this episode in particular. The last two minutes have so many things that book fans found surprising, interesting, new. There's the number of pearls. There's the fact that the solstice deadline has already elapsed. And in general, like the whole episode, like the inclusion of Hermes is the centerpiece of the episode and something that was added in. I guess I was wondering like how you all thought about the prospect of making this episode so different across these different dimensions and like what the value is of trying to create fan surprise for for adaptation yeah i think that's a great question our goal was to include the lotus casino because it's just one of the most memorable parts of book one but within the book i don't think it took up that many pages i think it was a pretty short stop and at the same time i I don't think other than setting them back there was a material plot difference uh it's something that materially changed the the plot for them So we really wanted to think about how can we expand. And I I wish we were able to spend more time in it because, you know, I I loved it. I had my druthers, we'd have like four episodes in there. But especially connect the beginning of the episode outside of the casino where they're talking about family. They've kind of become their own uh, little family unit. And Percy's on his way to meet his dad. We wanted to connect that to the end of the episode, Percy on his way to meet his dad. Lost friends, family, also big plot impact. Something had to change to get them where they are. So we we thought with the family element, what better God to have there than Hermes? He is in hiding. Um, he's not happy. Can't get out of his sweatpants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he probably has some stains on there. He can catch up in barbecue oh, stains. God. But we wanted to really have a family component throughout. And I think his scenes were so resonant. And as everyone here knows, sadly, will be very resonant over the five Mm -hmm. season arc. Yeah. So he just felt really right for it. Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing about adaptation is, I mean, our our actors are so good. I don't know what you guys were doing when you were 12 years old. I can guarantee you I was not like (laughs) crushing it. Talking underwater. Crew. And yeah, exactly. He did weeks and weeks of diving training, by the way, Walker. And he's such a stud. Oh, we love that kid. To be able to do it. He's the coolest. (laughs) But it's really hard. It's easier in a book to convey that mental interior as opposed to like our actors are incredibly good, but I don't think an audience member who hadn't read the books would know what's going on if they're kind of drifting out of their quest more and more and more. So that is one of the reasons we had other characters 
drop in that we know of. As for the solstice deadline, I think we just wanted to add stakes to the back end of the book. Whereas, um, and you know, it'll it'll be supported towards the end of the season, <laughs> episode eight. Yes. So I don't want to say too much about it, but it's going to be more explained. We really felt like where the end of this season differs from the end of The Lightning Thief, the end of this season sets up the end of season five better than the book sets up the end of book five. Like the, all the choices that were made here to like make the war with Kronos seem like a bigger deal than necessarily the war between Poseidon and Zeus was really effective in like the overarching story that obviously like, there's hindsight in, in being able to tell the story now that we know exactly what happens where Rick didn't have that necessarily in 2005. It's such a blessing. It's such a <laughs> blessing having all the books written because we get to know, you know, we have the arcs for all the characters laid out. We know what motivations are we can clarify motivations that might have been slightly delineated we can fix one character who has is described as blue eyes in one book and green eyes in another book (laughs) (laughs) thank you rick and it's just it's so helpful it's so helpful to have that and to be able to aim towards that um yeah again that'll be in episode eight that'll impactful speaking of knowing things brisbane in the show has been arguably more developed at this point in the story than it is in the book. Like at first when the show started, we were very like, let's like not dig too far into this ship. You know, we want to see how it gets played out in the season. Um, Just because we know what happens doesn't necessarily mean like some monumental stuff is going to go down between these two characters in the season. And then episode five happened and it totally knocked our socks off and it was beautiful and the way that their relationship grew so much and they both admitted things that they respect about each other especially Annabeth wow I don't know if you can say but if you can was the relationship between these two characters like particularly dove into more in the writer's room no I hear you I hear you I think um I will tread lightly we are honoring the overall arc of the books we you know we think that their ship is amazing. We love them and we don't want to move (laughs) too quickly. But at the same time, after having gone through a quest like this and moments like that, it does feel like you would have a different level of trust and connection with someone. Yes. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, you can have romantic feelings every, at any age, you know, they're, they're both young. They're 12 in this book. And I think this is a connection without those. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't think Annabeth has a crush on Luke like she did in the books, but I don't think she does. I know she doesn't have a crush on Percy right now. Yeah. I think they have like a working buddy cop partnership. Co-workers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which we'll get more of obviously as the, the seasons go on. But right now, kind of enjoying sitting in it. Yeah, I I guess now is a fair time for me to say I really feel like, especially after rewatching episode six, that I'm getting the vibe that Annabeth is like, you're a great coworker, and I really admire you and look up to you. Although I'm not going to say that to your face just yet. And Percy is like, wow, I'm fascinated. I am so fascinated by this girl. <laughs> the way that Walker has the little twinkle in his eye, and he crashes the car too. Yeah. <sighs> 
Exactly. It's the car crash that made me feel like, okay, a part of me was like, I wanted to ask Stuart about this because like how much is in the script versus how much is Walker just like being a fan of these books and knowing so much like how Percy feels coming into his performance. I mean, they're all fans of the books too. Walker's yeah. a huge fan. Leah is a giant fan as well. I mean, yeah. she was so stoked to just even audition and she loves 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 the books but no i think that a lot of it is these kids also are just friends i mean like they're the only really young kids people on set and they just hang out like it's so wholesome like (laughs) they just have like blasts like we're not going to school we're just in vancouver like hanging out oh and i will say on the percival subjects i mean obviously not a spoiler but season two there there's no grover to be the median between the two of them. So there's still a lot of room for that relationship to Zig and Zag. Oh yeah. We we think of Sea of Monsters as the Cooties book. <laughs> whereas in The Lightning Thief, you know, they're like acquaintances to coworkers. But then as soon as they get to 13, there's like, oh God, cooties, like the uncomfortableness. Well, the Cersei, I think yeah. when, he's at, when they're at Cersei and he first, it's when he first really sees her in that light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Knock on would yeah Corey, you want to ask about speaking of car crash the parking lot scene yeah we have to ask you about the parking lot scene this was like probably the hardest we've laughed at anything i think carter and... cried <laughs> so funny <laughs> what was written for that like what could even be on a page to describe the beats that yeah, we, like that we ended up action lines or does that yeah. come the direction oh no it was all of it i mean it was i mean jed is awesome and she is so good at getting performance and the humor, but a lot that was the script. I mean, every single action was in the script, and I really think just comes down to the kids too. I mean, Grover and Percy, and I guess Annabeth too, have had no good experiences getting into cars. I mean, they have, you know, aside from the bus in episode one, but they, you know, they get crashed by a Minotaur, they get the Furies to, you know, s- scare them off a bus, and now this. So. I really think the the humor of that scene comes down to Walker, Ariane, and Leah just, you know, looking like 12-year-olds but acting like seasoned pros. Like, they're just so good (laughs) at so much. Absolutely. Will you tell us about Levitating by Dua Lipa? Oh, that was Zoe Neary. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's what I heard. (laughs) Yeah, that was Zoe. She um, went to a Dua Lipa concert, too, and had a blast. (laughs) And she was like, this needs to go here now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I watched the movie, I, like... I think that's always when I turn it off is when they get to the Lotus because it's just, it's rough. It's so, <laughs> yeah. it's so it's- funny that you say that because I think that some people do have attachments to that scene based on the movie that are not necessarily that connected to the scene in the books where specifically in the movie, it's like a frat party, basically. It's so weird. They go line dancing at one point. Yeah. yeah like chorus girl line dancing. It is so like out of this world strange to me we were also relatedly curious as as far as like backstage details go about like when in the like writing revising tweaking drafting process do detail did details about casting start to emerge into the picture because this is an episode specifically where there are many reasons why the like casting of Hermes in particular like matters a lot I think for how like what a joke what jokes are going to be funny in this episode like what it's going to like the weight it'll have in the like progression of the season like I don't even know if y'all are allowed to talk about that but like no no for sure yeah, for when sure. was Lynn cast yeah when the studio told us we would get it 
the first thing I did was like looked up celebrities who love Percy Jackson. Mostly mm-hmm. this is like kind of like geek out with them. Like, is it all right if I geek out with these guys? Um, <laughs> and Lynn was one of the, the first names that popped up. He's a huge fan. We had that in the back of our mind. And Hermes, I think, is arguably the most complicated Olympian in the show. I love Mr. Uh, Mr. D so much. But his turn doesn't really happen until the fifth book. Yeah, but later. Hermes is such a complicated character, and he has to be hurt and really funny. And the performance Lynn gave was obviously good. It was out of this world, oh, yeah. and I think he captured so many layers with his performance. We just knew that it was the it was the right choice for him. I think we actually wrote Hermes into the Lotus before we had Lynn, and then mm. we were like, "Please!" And he he um, <laughs> he saved us. You're like, please, Lynn, come gamble yeah. with children. He was like, absolutely, yes. Oh, God. I mean, I think that's the really fun part about the, the the show is not only can you have really fun actors come out to Vancouver for a few days, like The Edge yeah. or Susan Cryer oh. for Edna, who is probably funnier off camera than on. Like, she is <laughs> one of one. Amazing. Her yeah. interview with John and Dan was, like, the highlight of my first year on a show. It was so funny. Oh, my God. But um, Jason Manzoukas. Yeah, Manzoukas is amazing. Perfect Mr. Megan Malali. His, oh, my God. Oh, my God. But, yeah, his riffing also is just, like, out of this world. Like, it's, like, hard not to laugh while we're rolling. But it, also the gods change form. Very you know, canonically change form. So you can also have new fun people and represent all different kinds of people for different gods. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. We were talking about that a little bit when in episode six, Percy's like, well, I don't know what Hermes looks like. So you guys need to go find him. We were like, oh, do we know if the gods change shape or change form? If Hermes is choosing to look like this, does Lin-Manuel Miranda exist in the Riordan verse? Is Hermes choosing to look <laughs> Like Lin Manuel Miranda. I think Hermes <laughs> was choosing to look like that because he knew the kid. He knew the kids were there. He wanted to help, <laughs> but he couldn't say that he could help. You know. Mm-hmm. So he chose to look like Pulitzer Prize winner Lin Manuel Miranda. I think so. Yes. <laughs> to, keep them, to keep them feeling welcome in the yes. space. That's not to say we're going to recast anyone um, of the people we had. We love everyone who came. Yes. But with Lance unfortunately passing away, it's you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's so necessity, good in that sadly. last episode. Yeah, oh, you guys have seen all. I think only got four. No, we've seen we all of them. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Hook and crook. So yeah, we won't spoil anything for anyone. But Jesus oh, Christ, yeah. episode seven. Oh, it's great. Episode I love that. eight. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We were so happy with Luke in episode oh, eight. Oh, he's great. <laughs> he's great. Yeah, we're getting on the Princess Andromeda. Carter and I are <laughs> joining that team. Well, what do you guys want to see for season two? I mean, obviously the party ponies. <laughs> we hear a lot. I think what well, I mean, like we're our, our like branding is about Persebeth. And I think authentically, those yeah. are the beats that we find the most interesting. So like Cersei, yeah. as you were saying, and like the yeah. Sirens Grove were probably the things that we have the most ongoing oh discussions God, about. It's one of the best scenes of the, the series, the whole book series is the Sirens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited in particular. I know I know this is a big deal to Daphne, so it's not like this isn't going to get played up, but like this season was very much about family and the whole story is about family. But next season I feel like it's so about the fatal flaws and like as they're starting to grow mm-hmm. up a little bit and like start to come into their identities and think about their identities as heroes being like what do we need 
to watch out for? Like, what are our pitfalls? How are we growing as people? And how do we identify those flaws in ourselves? And then how do Percy and Annabeth's fatal flaws complement each other so much? Yeah, I really do think for season two, I mean, they're in a really good place in episode six, but I think for season two, they probably won't be in as good a place because they don't have Grover mm-hmm. as the medium. And instead yeah, of having someone to absorb all of that, they have someone who accelerates all of that enticing. Yeah. Yeah. Who Percy has to kind of protect, but also it's complicated. Yeah. And Annabeth has strong feelings about. So, yeah. I mean, we're just trying to figure out, you know, it's still really early, but I think yeah. one of the big challenges for season two is just calibrating that. Um, but it's yeah. going to be so fun. How much yeah. bickering is is appropriate? I love the bickering. It's just how <laughs> angry it is. No, the, the bickering, bickering is important. Yeah. And yeah. especially like Annabeth's storyline in season two for us was so... Like we really appreciated front loading some of it in season one where like we we are getting these ideas that Annabeth is like ideologically evolving. And at the beginning that she's kind of yeah. like a traditionalist and small C conservative, someone who's like afraid of like new things and things that are in, in conflict with these uh, like ideological orthodoxies that she has about the world and divinity and stuff. And especially since we went pretty far with that in season one, we have to like, we have to go further in season two. Like we have to really yeah, have yeah, her. Yeah exercise some demons about her own prejudices well i also feel like even though even though she like she saw percy in episode five and was like i want to be like that and like maybe my mom's ideology isn't the be all end all the fact that she goes back home in between these two seasons yeah so the reason such a traditionalist is like we were thinking about this and it's like obviously a lot of it's in the books but you have to dive deeper and like the only time she's really spent in the the mortal world the human world was like in this bad you know not bad but like a family that's going through something really tough kind of dysfunctional family and she got chased she ran away and yeah. so she's been in the you know godly world for mm-hmm. the last what six years i think she has six speeds yeah be wrong by the time we meet her. So she hasn't really experienced anything else. And this is her first foray into the world again. So a lot of it is, you know, she's a by the book person, Percy street smarts, and it's kind of them balancing each other out in a good way. And the culmination of that is I'm going to have the bravery to go home and, you know, see my family again. Yeah. But then being there, I, I, definitely triggering and definitely <laughs> brings up thoughts that yeah. she has about the world and how the world works and how she has to protect herself and then coming back into it in season two. Yeah. Like where she is in her headspace definitely plays into like how awkward their, uh, their relationship is between the two of them yeah, yeah, exactly. and how willing she is to, to move and be changed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm so season excited. two chills guys. Oh, God. God. I can't yeah. wait for the boats. Oh, yeah. Big okay, pirate that is actually John like the, Steinberg. The, the adaptation <laughs> yeah. thing is like knowing that the team behind the show, if they're going to do one thing, it's like the ocean. You know, it's, the, <laughs> it's an adventure on the seas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will say though, and I like my thing. I think we can all agree, Sea of Monsters is probably the least strong of the five, which is a good thing for us because I think fans are going to be less precious about most of it. Obviously, we're going to yeah. keep the sirens. We're going to keep beloved things, but there's a lot more room to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, go deeper into like the stuff like oh, family yeah. and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. for me, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, why is Luke on a ship when Percy's, you know, the son of God at sea? Like, why is that not the ship not sunk? You know, like it's neither here nor there. Oh, the, it, the Bermuda Triangle, like rules are off. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Territory. The sun has no control there for sure. Yeah. 
I haven't thought about that too. Where, like the Sea of Monsters really is just like like little snippets of the Odyssey, and there's so much that happens in the Odyssey that you can pull from and like throw into. Yeah, into it's just episodes. in the Argonauts too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to to be sprinkled in. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Like I think that the Lightning Thief, like no one is going to be as precious about anything as they are about the Lightning Thief. That that's just yeah. the one that everyone's reread, and like because there's the movie and there's the musical, there's so many different iterations of it. There's definitely. I, like, I would be remiss not to say Joe Trass is the <laughs> funniest, smartest, most talented dude ever. He wrote The Lightning Thief, in case anyone's wondering where that <laughs> caveat came from. The musical, the musical. And yeah, so he co wrote this, um, and he is amazing. I love Joe. Hi, Joe. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't say we want a musical episode at some point. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> The mean, the mean Girls Percy Jackson crossover. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Oh wow. Clarice George. Clarice. Oh my God. I sing World Burn. Okay. <laughs> the question that we have for you that we obviously have to end this episode on is Do you believe that Persephone is the greatest love story ever told in all of its iterations and all the ways that exists here in 2024? Um, And if not, or even if yes, do you have any comparable um, love stories that you would like to cite? Obviously, me and my girlfriend is the greatest love story never told. She's listening to this. (laughs) She is upstairs somewhere trying not to make any noise. Um, (laughs) Never told, but I think Persephone hit me at a time in my life when I was just starting to talk to girls and get crushes <laughs> and stuff like that. I don't remember being invested more in a love story. So I will say, yes, the greatest love story ever told <laughs> Romeo and Juliet have something to learn from these guys. So yes, it's true. Absolutely. Oh my <laughs> yeah. gosh. Thank you. Before we end up here, is there anything else you want to say? Like, do you, I mean, this is your platform to speak to the fans. Do you want to, Anything. Fingers crossed for season two, guys. Bring your bring your swimwear. Oh yeah. Let's hope. Pack your whites, pack your cruise wear. We're getting on that boat. All aboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All aboard. Choo choo. What do what do boat ahoy? make? It's not a choo choo. Ahoy ahoy. Yeah. Ahoy ahoy. ahoy, ahoy. <laughs> I feel like it's like a like a like a steam boat. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> great good bit guys good oh, bit. And there, will be, there will be no confederate boats in this season oh my so. god i didn't want to ask but yeah don't worry thank you for um, saying okay great <laughs> okay thank you so much for joining us today thank you guys so much zoe's very excited for her episode i tried to get her to come on mine but she wants to prepare and everything so. oh my god yeah Daphne She's was like ready. you need to have them on together because they're like buddy buddy cops the two of them yeah yeah, good cop, good cop, good cop, crazy <laughs> cop. But yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I've had a blast. Thank and you. seriously, if you guys ever have any questions or want to zoom about the actual like writing entertainment industry, I'd be more than happy to to you know be there. Oh yeah, you'll get an email from me for sure. There we go. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Right. We will see you guys see next you guys. time. Bye. 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 Thank you.